Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, a Full Mind production. At Full Mind, our vision is to ensure every child has access to an exceptional education. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. Welcome back, everybody, to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. Today is a very special episode. I'm excited to introduce you to, you may already know this person, but I'm excited to introduce on today's episode, Adam Ezring, the Deputy Director at the Collaborative for Student Success. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Haley, how you doing? You know, I'm pretty great. As we said, it's it's Friday Eve. It's been a, it's been a good week here for me. How are you? I, I'm doing better now because you just called this a very special episode. And I don't know what makes me special, but now I'm feeling even more special. So, wow, well, I'm just excited. I know, listen, I love getting to meet brilliant people doing work on behalf of students. And I say that you and your team fall squarely in that department. So I'm super excited for you to tell folks about the work you do at the Collaborative and for you to share even about your own story. Should we jump right in? We should jump right in. I appreciate being called brilliant. The team is brilliant. I'm I'm a part of the team, but but let's. I you know, love that, and that's let's be truthful. Probably add humble too. Then, right? We should add that as a brilliant and humble. There you go. So, Adam, I, I always ask my guests to start off with a little bit of a introspective question, which is, how did you come to be the professional and personal version of yourself? Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you asked that question and start with it. Um, one of the things you remember from your childhood, but I have this very specific memory of my parents telling me that years earlier, a sort of like pencil pushing administrator had told them that even though I didn't have a documented learning disability, I was what they called a slow, unengaged learner, and that I would likely never graduate from high school. So God only knows how a administrator makes that determination of like a little kid in kindergarten or first grade or, or, or whatever. But thankfully for me, I had parents who were like, yeah, no, <laughs> we'll just see about that there. They just didn't accept that. They just wouldn't, you know, allow me to be put in this box by, by, by this administrator. And they made education a, a, a priority for me. And, you know, fortunately for me, they were, they were able to help me out. They were able to, you know, work with me. They were able to get me after school tutoring. Inevitably, when we moved, we moved to a better school district because they wanted me and my older sister to have better opportunities. Uh, so I'm the product of public schooling, but I'm the product of engaged family supporting that 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 public schooling. And I am lucky and fortunate as a result of it. So so the kid who was who was once told would never graduate from high school sits before you today with a master's degree in public policy. And I recognize wholeheartedly the value and strength of education because of that. You know, often when I ask this question, the follow-up is like, what moments stand out to you as transformative as a learner? And my goodness, did you just answer that in your very first statement? That is, whew. Yeah. I wonder how many parents... Maybe hopefully not as much today as as a while back, but uh, when I and and I don't want to make excuses for anyone because that is a pretty unacceptable thing to say to a parent, especially right. when you're talking about a learner at the start of their career. Like, woo! But you know that is transformative in a negative way for so many. Uh, like I said, I'm fortunate that I had parents who didn't accept that, 
And I am fortunate that I had opportunities presented to me in all the years that followed, you know, with strong, you know, uh, educators and, 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 and strong public school opportunities to overcome those challenges, right? But I think you're right that so many people don't and so many young people get get thwarted because of it, held back because of it. I, I think a lot of parents and students become uninspired because of it and and give up as opposed to uh, uh, overcome the, the the struggles. And and we need to do a better job in the education field at making sure that that's not the case, that we are helping students overcome these challenges. Yeah, I'm just like sitting with this for a second. I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. I, well, you know, it's so hard. It's so hard. I, I was a teacher and I think about the times that people tell stories like celebrities and writers and accomplished politicians, and they tell similar stories like so-and-so said this, you know, this administrator said I'd never amount to anything like, look at me now. And what a backward way to try and inspire a kid to achieve. I mean, it's it's clearly the opposite of what all brain science tells us will be effective. And the system in some ways, you know, obviously disproportionately is built and impacts uh, dif different kinds of communities. And it's just such a, I, I feel like, like, whoo, that's so heavy, Adam. <laughs> it's so uh, heavy. So, it's so like, one of the reasons why it stuck with me all these years. I mean, I remember, I don't remember the incident. I don't think I was even in the room. I remember my parents telling me about the incident and, mm. and that, 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 that motivated them, but they also use it as a way to tell me what I had overcome. You know, uh, it wasn't, they weren't trying to use it as a motivator for me as a, you know, kindergarten or first grader. They were like, oh, you're never going to graduate from high school. No, it was years later that they sat down with me and they told me about how far I've come. And I'm glad that they shared that story. I imagine that that story has obviously driven your, you personally and professionally, but it also really has driven uh, what the reason for your involvement in an organization like the collaborative. So why don't you tell a little bit for our listeners, what is the mission, the work that you're doing at the collaborative for student success? And maybe how does that tie back to your initial inspiration that you just shared? Yeah. I'm glad you, glad you asked that question that way. The mission and, and focus of the collaborative is multifaceted, you know, as, as a, Fun fact about me, I, I, I look for inspiration in, in movies. I'm sort of a child of the silver screen. And, and I particularly love movies where, where people overcome challenges and obstacles. It's like, you know, the Goonies finding the treasure to save their, their home. It's like, I love that kind of thing. And I look for the same sort of inspiration in education. I want to see bold, dramatic education initiatives. I want to I want I want people to not accept the status quo and to and to overcome it. And that's one of the missions of the collaborative for student success. Our job in the education space and and field is to change the national narrative around major education reform efforts and initiatives to spotlight great work that's going on in education, to raise awareness of the things that are working, to build support for the things that are working, to encourage scaling, replication, and emulation of the things that are working. And we do that across a, a variety of fronts. We're, we're, we're focused on high-quality curricular materials. We're focused on the use of data through state assessments. We're focused on how states are using this influx of federal relief funds to accelerate learning in the wake of the pandemic. And I'll happily talk more about each of those, but let me pause there because that's the big picture mission and vision of the collaborative. 
You know, our brains are wired. I I talked about brain science already once today, so we could tell what kind of episode this is going to (laughs) be. But our brains are wired to receive like feedback, either positive or negative in the same way. The same things light up in your brain when you receive feedback. But what I love is as humans, we can be easily motivated by positive, by looking at what's good around us and, and striving for that. So Obviously, it sounds like the spotlight work that you're doing and and the attention you're giving to some of these really profound, effective implementations and thinking and structures has been very impactful. What do you, would you say that on I, I, hard to describe where we are in the pandemic endemic? I know recently we, the CDC just announced that we're not having a pandemic anymore, but where we are today in May of 2023, how would you describe the bright spots on this this side of the pandemic? It's a great question. So we uh, during the pandemic, we wanted to try and find those bright spots and those and those spotlights. Uh, so we launched an effort uh, in a new website called edurecoveryhub.org. The goal of that effort was to look through all of the statewide efforts and spending and pull out those those great examples, those those um, spotlights that were worthy of highlighting that we wanted to see other uh, that we wanted to see scaled or repli- replicated or, or or emulated. So we partnered with the Edgenomics Lab at Georgetown University and the Center on Reinventing Public Education to dive into state efforts around the country and see what we could find. As a result of that, that that website now houses just about seventy promising practices across 30 states uh, around the country. And there's some really great work going on around the country with the use of those those funds. And in places like Ohio, where they're working with universities to provide tutoring to, to school districts, in places like Arizona, where they modernized their whole transportation system to make sure that they were getting students to school and so that they had Wi-Fi accessible buses and the like. In places like Baltimore, where they hired paraprofessional support so that teachers could spend more time in small group instruction and with and developing individualized learning plans for for students. So there's a lot of great work going on around the country with with the impact of the uh, pandemic and the pandemic funding that that you know came into into education. It's it's we like to call them promising practices because we don't know yet, you know, what of those are going to be the most effective and have the most impact. And that's part of the next step of what we have to do now that we are post-pandemic, as you say. Yeah, I think, of course, we can see, I love the term promising. We, of course, we could see how immediate impact is generated and what, what outcomes we're seeing. But there's also this longitudinal approach we have to think about as well. What has sticking power? What's able to be replicated? I know that you touched on the comment about the looming fiscal cliff uh, or like where people are spending their money. What will persist beyond the current dollars that are being allocated to schools? Mm. I think that's a big question for a lot of people right now is we did all these great things. We had all this available funding. What happens when it dries up? How are you thinking about that particular challenge that schools are facing right now? Yeah, this is the challenge. You're 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 100 right, um, and we're not quite there yet, right? Because states have until the end of next year to to pay down all of their all of their funds. But we're not waiting uh, on that deadline, right? We need to know now 
what's working so that we can know when the funding dries up, what needs to be sustained long-term. And that's part of our shift in transition and the new work of the Edu Recovery Hub. We're sort of done trying to find the promising practices. Now we want to know what's working. So we've actually very recently launched a whole effort to try and ascertain that. We have sent a, a letter to every state and every district that we've spotlighted on the Edu Recovery Hub, and we've asked them to tell us what data they have about reach and impact. We know how they've spent the money. We don't really know what students have been reached, like demographically what students have been reached, what parents have been reached, what educators have been reached, how has the community benefited from these investments. We need to look at data. We need to look at student assessment data to make some determinations about what is working. Now, now, in all fairness, right, it's a little early. Some of these, some of these programs, we don't know yet whether or not they're they're successful. We don't have three years worth of trend data. They've gone into effect over the last three years. But we have preliminary data that we need to be collecting, that we need to be looking at, and that we need to be analyzing. In in Connecticut, for example, they actually used their federal COVID relief funds to create a research collaborative with their higher education university system to regularly evaluate some of the major efforts that they were investing in with their pandemic funds. Every state should be doing something similar and every state, every district should be collecting that reach and impact data on these investments so that they can make educated decisions about what needs to be sustained. We wanna help do that and we wanna help spotlight where we have the data, what is working. I've seen such a positive trend especially in my space and ed tech towards impact data. I wouldn't yeah. say that we're holistically there, but the ESSER funds necessitated some demonstration of impact. The media seems to have grabbed onto that quite a bit. Uh, there have been a couple loud voices in the room that have talked about it. And I, I appreciate how much of an emphasis the collaborative is playing in that particular arena because it is a very difficult job to be an administrator. And over the past three years, it has been an exceedingly difficult job to be a teacher, an administrator, a superintendent, whatever level. Yeah. And yet we have to be really smart about what investments, both from a resource, meaning financial and time perspective that we're putting in our schools. There was that uh, Learn Platform research study that said teachers were using 1,729 ed tech tools during the pandemic. That's a huge number, Adam. Yeah. Right? Like we, of course, that's too big. Like I couldn't even remember my two passwords to get into anything I need to get into on a daily basis. Well, 1700, but it's not about breadth. It's about depth. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think that, I think that for too often in education, the, the, the vision of ed tech has always been, what's the new thing we can buy? What's the new thing we can deliver to a school district? And less about how to use it, how to use it effectively in your classroom. And you're right. Like, no, I think teachers have had it harder than any other profession in the world over the last couple of years. And clearly school administrators haven't had it easy either because they're trying to make sense of all, all this chaos. The only thing that I can say is to just, you know, like plus one to everything you said, that like, when it comes to technology funding, when it comes to investments in ed tech, 
We've got to look at what's working. We've got to look at the data. We've got to make the case for that ed tech and for those investments on the basis of data, on the basis of what's working, on the basis of what teachers say is making a difference in their students' lives every day. How has the collaborative decided, like how did the decision come to be or why do you think the prioritization of HQIM, high quality instructional materials and assessments are leading a lot of the work? Like what, let's talk for for folks yeah. that are just trying to understand that decision because there's a couple routes you could have gone, but those are, those are important ones. So let's dive into yeah. why those are leading the work. I, I really appreciate you you asking that question because you're you're spot on and that the collaborative has made high quality instructional materials and uh, state assessment data and the use of data critical priorities for for our organization and because we believe they're critical priorities for the entire education field. Groups like Ed Reports and Rand will tell you on the curriculum front that upwards of seventy percent of teachers struggle on a daily basis to find high quality instructional materials that that motivate their students, that help them reach their students. Teachers shouldn't be wasting their time, spending their time looking for this. They should have it. We should be providing it to them. We should be providing them the aligned professional learning to help them make the most of those materials in their classroom. We set out to help with that. We created a, a website called Curriculum HQ, and it has resources and it helps uh, educators, parents, community members just learn about the existence of high quality materials that that are that are highly rated and that are making a difference in reaching students and and uh, teachers and their students. Um, there there are you know high quality supports like Zern and Dreambox that are helping thousands of students right now, understand and engage better with math, with mathematics in particular, which is such a struggle for, for young kids. We know that these materials are good. We know that these materials are strong. They're not being used everywhere, right? And they're few and far between. There are too few of these great materials that work, right? So we need, we need to make people aware of the, of, of the strength of, of things like Zern and Dreambox, and we need to encourage access to and the use of the materials that are making a difference. When Sold a Story came out, every one of my mom friends was like, Haley, did you know about this? Did you know that some, I'm like, yes, of course I knew about this. Also, they're like, well, how do I know about my school? I go, well, there's this thing called Ed Reports. And let me tell you, yeah. they there was a there was a little bit of a hullabaloo uh, amongst my network of mom friends who were at schools where their materials that their students were using were not high quality. It's it goes hand in hand with that statement about 1700 ed tech tools. Technically, a lot of digital curriculums are considered ed tech, right? Uh, there are so many there, schools are inundated with the choices of what to use. I appreciate the emphasis on here, let us just compile it and make it easier for you. I had a call with a, a, a mom friend this morning whose son is not reading. It's the end of kindergarten. She's like, what do I do this summer? This is one of my best friends from college. And, and she said to me, where do I look to figure out what to do? I was like, well, there's no one place to look, but you know, how hard is that as a parent? to have this desire to you know, better your kid's education and not know even know where to go. 
I mean, I think this is part of the the, the challenge at large in, in education. We don't make it easy to find the good stuff. We don't make it easy to find out what you're even currently using to know if it's good or if it could be better. Um, you know, there are some states that have lists, like re- lists of the materials that their districts can use and they tier them by quality right and they you know because because there's a lot of you know conversation in education policy about local control and whatnot we don't dictate curriculum at a higher up level down right but we can tell people what's good and what's better right we can we can highlight for parents and families and community members whether or not their district their school is using the 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 best of what's out there to be used right now very few states actually have those sort of like you know statewide uh, approved lists of curriculum and part of our job with curriculum hq is to help raise awareness of the existence of better materials but also the existence of where those materials are being used and or not being used right to create advocacy you know for and in support of uh, better materials I, I think that that advocacy point is a really interesting one. I just had an episode go live with some folks I think you know, Tafshir Cosby, Evan Stone, Mohan um, from Our Turn. And we talked a lot about advocacy and the work that is required of various stakeholders to be a part of improvement for their kids. And I don't I don't think it's a shame. I think it's great. Advocacy means involvement. It means uh, having a knowledgeable stakeholder population. And it also means like being current with information. So I I really do appreciate, you know, the work that's happening by Collaborative to afford various stakeholders the information so they can make a decision about how their involvement looks and sounds and feels. Yeah. Uh, well, I gotta I gotta say, uh, Tafshir and Mohan are dear friends. I'm I'm honored to be amongst their ranks and as a you know guest on, on your podcast. Evan is like a legend in in the education field, so I appreciate that. You know, on Tafshir in particular, you know, she's a uh, a parent advocate and and is part of a national organization, the National Parent Union. We actually partnered with the National Parent Union to create a sort of like you know top 10 list of the practices and investments that we had uh, surfaced via the education recovery hub that were specific to the needs and interests of parents like what are the what are the types of practices that that parents most want to see could most benefit from cared the most about we created this you know sort of top 10 advocacy tool so that um, the national parent unions epic campaign had like this resource to carry with them into advocacy meetings so that they could go to policymakers and say, hey, are we doing these things in our state? And if we're not doing these things in our state, why aren't we? Right. Here's the list. Here's the list of promising practices. We should be following suit here in, you know, insert your state here. Right. Yeah. I I love that. That's exactly how I imagine partnership to work partnership in this space to work. Uh, We all have different strengths. We all have different foci. I love that the National Parents Union had your resources and information at their fingertips when they were equipping parents with the knowledge and information to speak on behalf of their kids, their deserving kids at their school meetings. And 
with their school leadership. That's so important. That I, that's, a, what I come, that's what I come across so often though, right? Like again, yeah. like in my network, highly intelligent, highly educated and, and, and like, it, it doesn't have to be that. Every parent cares. You shouldn't have yeah. to be an educator, highly educated. Like, no, that is exactly the problem. Uh, we need better tools to equip parents of all different backgrounds to support the people they love, their their children, their students. T- totally agree. And I'm I'm really proud of the partnership that that we did with the National Parent Union. It was it was exactly you know the goal of of the partnership to, to create a resource to help parents advocate on behalf of their students. By the way, we also created a similar list with TNTP, the new teacher project, formerly known as the new teacher project, to create a, a list and resources, a, a list of promising practices based on, on the priorities of that organization. And hey, I'll put this out to all of your listeners. We'd create a list for any of them, you know, to so that they could know what the promising practices priorities are that they might, that they might care about. Um, Cause we've got it. It's all, it's all there in one place. By the way, I do have to jump in here and say that um, in addition to, you know, providing uh, parents specific examples of what to advocate for, this is where data is also super important and, and, and critical. Um, and I mentioned edurecoveryhub.org and I mentioned curriculumhq.org and I'd be totally remiss if I didn't mention Assessment HQ, which is another website that we run that is committed to transparently and publicly reporting on every state's state assessment results, right? Because too often this data is buried on state education agency websites, and it's not understood by the general public. But but state assessment data is so critical to seeing where we are as a nation, but seeing where we are in individual states about how students are performing. And we want that data to be widely seen and understood. Sadly, that data is underutilized. I just have to say, like, we do a a not great job at using state assessment data to make sure that we are driving resource allocation decisions on behalf of the schools and students that need them the most. But Assessment HQ is designed to help help correct that problem, you know, with with first making sure that we are being super transparent and, and publicly reporting this data. Oh, I love that. I love transparency. I think that over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of light shown on problems that always existed that now a lot more people have attention on. And so the more or more of their attention on, the more that we can discuss that and acknowledge that and use that information to make decisions on behalf of deserving students, the better we off we are. Adam, I usually ask my last guest about what advice they would give a teacher starting their career. Uh, I have the same question for you. Teachers, you know, starting their career today, it's a very different landscape than it was even four years ago. So what would you tell them? My advice for teachers, and it's not just teachers starting their career, I think it's all teachers, is to get out there and and make your voice heard. I think teachers are and can be and should be central to education advocacy efforts because teachers really are experts. They're experts about their students. They're experts about their needs. And teachers have a voice and that voice can can live and exist 
beyond the confines of, of their classroom. And it should, you know, teachers should be advocating for the use of data before their school administrators, before their school boards. Teachers should be pushing for those high quality instructional materials in their classroom and the aligned professional learning that, that must accompany it for in order for it to be successful. Teachers know the types of investments with these federal COVID relief dollars that are making a difference and an impact in their schools and in their classrooms. They need to be out there saying that and asking for, for, for more of it and asking for those problems to be sustained. Uh, the collaborative is deeply involved in, in wanting to help and encourage uh, teacher advocacy. We're actually, we're actually um, doing a strategic communications training for science teachers around the country in July. Uh, after that, we are presenting at the National Network of State Teachers of the Year, talking about how they can uh, play a role in, in creating those, those state lists of, of, of high quality curriculum and, and, and whatnot. And, and we're launching a whole new effort to try and find more math teacher champions in particular. We, we previously worked with groups like the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics to create cohorts of, of math advocates from, from the sort of teacher pool. We're going to be doing more of that because we need more math champions right now around the country talking about what it is that, that educators need in order to be super successful in their classroom. And, and we owe it to those teachers to help them find that voice and to spread that voice widely. That is a perfect, perfect end to our conversation, Adam. I will just reiterate how grateful I am that you were today's guest and sharing this important work that you and the team are doing over at the Collaborative for Student Success. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the Learning Can't Wait podcast today. Uh, Haley, thank you. And I'm honored to be on your podcast. And and as we've already discussed, I do want to also plug the Route K-12 podcast that the Collaborative for Student Success runs. That's on our edurecoveryhub.org edu edu site. That sadly took me too, you know, too long to get out there. But um, <laughs> but uh, no, I love the fact that we've had this conversation. I love the 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 dialogue. And I'm just I'm so excited that we're going to be able to work together and and spread the word. Yeah, absolutely. As I say, as I say in this space, I am so grateful to be in your orbit, being around people that are working on behalf of kids, deserving kids all over the US and hopefully one day the world. It's just an incredible place to be. So thank you so much again, Adam. Thank you, Haley. Really appreciated it. Great conversation. Thanks. Yeah, agreed. And thanks to everybody for tuning in today. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at fullmindlearning.com.